Let me invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. It's been some time since we have been in the Gospel of Mark, and hopefully we're returning today. We're picking up where we left off, and uh, that is verses 29 through 45. When I was studying this week and preparing for our time together, I kept thinking about something I'm going to deal with in a few moments when we get to the end of, toward the end of the message. And uh, that's where I started with everything. In fact, I was about completely done, and then I was writing out the introduction and all, and I began to think about this passage. And uh, I've somewhat struggled with this passage, only in this sense is that Mark goes through a situation so quickly I mean, he keeps using that term immediately, and then he says what he's going to say, and then boom, he's gone somewhere else. And, but uh, it's taken a little bit of time for me to absorb some of this, but I've had a lot of time to do that. And so as we begin this morning, and I hope that you're turned there, I want to begin by asking you just this simple question is, who is Jesus? And if somebody were to ask you who is Jesus, how would you respond? Because if you think about it, the Gospel of Mark is telling us about Jesus, right? And according to the New Testament, the Bible teaches that He is the incarnate Word. He is the Creator. He is the Savior of the world. He's the founder of Christianity. He's also the sinless example of obedience to God. Now, if you'll notice in the Gospel of Mark, and I just want to back you up to chapter 1, verse 1. Mark, when he begins this Gospel, he uses a title there for Jesus. And it's in verse 1. He says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark says that this Gospel is about Jesus, who is the Son of God. So everything that he tells us in this gospel is to prove that he is the Son of God. And when you begin to look at it like that, that's where the passage opens up. Because we have here three healings that take place by Jesus. And three of these are found in this account in verses 29 to 45. But this gospel is about Jesus, and every story in this gospel demonstrates this truth. In chapter 1, we hear it at his baptism in verse 11. When we hear this, a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And that's what the Father said of the Lord Jesus. We also hear it in his teaching as the people in verse 21 were amazed for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So when he taught, he taught unlike anyone else. The rabbis, when they would teach, they would quote other rabbis. Jesus didn't need to quote anyone. He quoted himself because this is his word. We also see it as he exercises power over demons. He says to the unclean spirit in verse 25, Be quiet and come out of him. And what happened? He came out. And now we see it in his healing ministry. And that's what picks up at verse 29 and takes us all the way to verse 45. 
So I want to begin there in verse 29 as I begin to read this. It says, Immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand. And the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him, and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. <clears throat> Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. In these 17 verses, we see Jesus' healing power. We see his healing power over fever, over demons and diseases, and over leprosy. And as I just stated, this demonstrates who Jesus is, that He is the Son of God. Only the Son of God had this kind of authority. And He had no limitations whatsoever. Because as the Son of God, He was also God incarnate. No one had this kind of power or authority that Jesus demonstrated. Well, if you look back at verse 29... And the first healing occurs in verses 29 to 31, and this is where we see his power over fever. They had just came out of the synagogue service, verse 29. It would have been about 12 noon. They came to Simon and Andrew's house, and they were accompanied by James and John. They immediately noticed that Simon's mother-in-law was sick with fever. In fact, it's interesting that the word for fever is uh, the word pyro, which means fire. She was burning up. And so they immediately noticed that she was in bed with this fever. Matthew eight fourteen says she was lying sick in bed. Luke adds to this in Luke four thirty eight and says that she was suffering from a high fever. So this was very serious and even possibly life-threatening. 
So they immediately spoke to Jesus about her. And Mark records in verse 30 that Jesus came to her, raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. Matthew says he touched her hand and the fever left. Luke says that he rebuked the fever and it left. So each occurrence really in the Gospels indicates that his power over fever was either through a touch or by a rebuke. And then Luke says she immediately stood up and began waiting on them. She was healed. It was immediate as indicated by her immediately standing up. You know what it's like to have a fever. You don't feel like doing anything but laying down. And here Jesus took her by the hand, rebuked the fever, lifted her up, and she was healed immediately. She went from lying sick in bed to now serving them, waiting on them. Maybe since it was noon, it was time for the noon meal. And she gets up and serves them. Now, I don't want you to just let this go away or move on to the next one and forget about this, but what does this say about Jesus? If he can heal fevers, a high fever, just by a touch and a word, what does that say about him? And what does that cause in your heart? Because I know sometimes you have times when you're sick or you have a loved one that's sick or you have a friend that's sick and you pray for them and God hears your prayer and immediately He heals them. Other times you may pray and God doesn't answer your prayer by healing them. Maybe there are other things going on here that He wants you to persevere in like prayer. But I know that any time a healing occurs, praise comes from your heart, right? You praise God for what He has done. Even if it's a prolonged amount of time before you finally experience the healing, but praise God, you're healed. But I want you to notice in this healing situation, as well as the other two, that this is unlike what is being proclaimed today. Because there are people out there today saying that they have this same kind of power that Jesus had to heal people. And my immediate question is, is if you have this kind of power, then why do we have hospitals? Why don't you go to the hospital if you have this gift and lay your hands on all of these people that are sick in hospitals and sick of hospitals? <laughs> why don't you do that? If you have this power, why don't you even go to the funeral home and start raising people from the dead because they proclaim that they know how to do that too? Why don't you go to all these places where there is therapy for, for kids and adults that have issues, physical issues that they have to have therapy for because their, their bones, their body, their muscles, their tendons, all these are not working correctly, maybe due to some injury or some paralysis. Why aren't you there? No, instead they host it in a very safe place and they ask you to bring them to them. It's very hypocritical. But you know what? This is one of the first recorded healings that we see right here and it occurs just with front of 
Simon, or Peter, his brother Andrew, their two friends, James and John. Uh, possibly Peter's wife was there. This is Peter's mother-in-law. But here he touched her, and he spoke a word, and she was healed. When I read that, I was thinking about Psalm 103. Psalm 103, the first three verses says, Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Bless Yahweh. Oswald Chambers says Jesus Christ reveals not an embarrassed God, not a confused God, not a God who stands apart from the problems, but one who stands in the thick of the whole thing. So just remember that the next time that you're sick or the next time you're you're suffering, that Jesus stands right there in the thick of the whole thing. He's right there with you. You can trust Him. You can call upon Him. Because he said he would never leave us. Amen? So this first demonstration right here, what does it prove to the disciples? It approves that Jesus is who he said he is. This was faith confirming for the disciples. In fact, when you study the miracles, most of them were done in the presence of the disciples. It was for them. To affirm their faith. So we see here his power over fever. Notice in verse 32, down to verse 39, we see his power over demons and diseases. Look at verse 32. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. They knew exactly who he was. They couldn't deny that. But he didn't want them revealing that, especially before the time. Here he says, when evening came, news of the Lord Jesus' healing here of Simon's mother-in-law had spread during the day. But as long as it was the Sabbath, the people dared not bring the needy to him because of all of the regulations on the Sabbath day, this would have been counted as a work to bring someone to Jesus for the purpose of healing. And it would have been a sin against this regulatory observance of the Sabbath if Jesus healed anybody on the Sabbath. At least that's what they thought. But there was certainly, once the Sabbath ended, as it says here, when evening came and the sun had set, now the Sabbath's over, they began bringing to him all who were ill. It's interesting with the verb there is that they kept bringing all these people who needed a healing. It just kept coming. On and on and on. And you know he had already demonstrated his power and authority over demons over in verse 23. 
He commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man in the synagogue there in Capernaum in verse 26. If you also look down at verse 32 that we just read, that they brought to him all who were ill and all who were demon-possessed. And look down at verse 34. He healed many who were ill with various diseases, cast out many demons, was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew he was. Look over verse 39. He went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. So he had authority over diseases and authority over demons, unclean spirits. Now, this was already a busy day. He'd been at the synagogue that morning. He had cast a demon out of a man in the synagogue during that service. Service is over. They come to Simon Peter's house with Andrew and James and John, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then when evening comes, all these people began to come for healing, and so he is healing them. So this has been going way on into the night. And then all of a sudden, if you look down at verse 35, it says, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place, and was praying there. Why did he do that? How about he needed a break? He needed a time of refreshing. And his power didn't come in his miracles. His power came through prayer to the Father. That's what we need to understand. Any power that you and I need is going to come through prayer not through some kind of event. And again, if you think about it, he had been doing this all day long up until the evening. And then verse 35 says, in the early morning while it was still dark. Now this was sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. So he had probably only slept maybe two or three hours. And he gets up, he leaves the house, he goes away to a secluded place, and he was praying. Albert Barnes says, here observe first that the Savior, though perfectly holy, regarded the duty of secret prayers of great importance. And number two, that he sought a solitary place for it, far away from the world and even from his disciples. So to observe number three, that it was early in the morning, always the best time and a time when it should not be omitted. He says a fourth thing to notice, if Jesus prayed, how much more important is it for us? If he did it in the morning, how much important is it for us before the world gets possession of our thoughts, before Satan fills us with unholy feelings when we rise fresh from beds of repose and while the world around us is still? I think about that. Probably my freshest time is in the morning. Even though it takes me a little bit of time to wake up, especially if we've had a, a bad night with seizure activity with Samuel and things like that. Because that usually occurs between 12.30 in the morning and 4.30 in the morning. So somewhere in that little window, when they occur, they occur at that time. And so... Sometimes I come in here on Sunday morning and having had them happen Saturday morning, Saturday night, early Sunday morning, I'm just dragging because of that. 
But you know, the psalmist, he sought God in the morning hours. And by the way, maybe this 3 to 6 a.m., maybe that is my time because when the seizures occur, that's my morning hour and that's when I am up praying as I sit on the side of the bed with Samuel waiting for these seizures to stop and just praying for him and comforting and trying to talk to him. You know, so again, the Lord has a way to wake us up, right? Whether you want to or not. I've had a couple times sitting on the edge of his bed and about fall off the bed because I'm so asleep. But I'm still praying even in those moments. Psalm 5.3 says, O Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. It was in the morning when he was fresh. It was in the morning when he woke up and he wanted to seek God as the first part of his day, the first thing he did in his day. In Psalm 119, verse 147, he says, I eagerly greet the dawn and cry for help. I wait for your words. You know, you can pick the time, but for us, for all believers, you know, we operate really under 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, which says, pray without ceasing. So if you're praying without ceasing, meaning that you're praying all the time, then whether it's morning, midday, or evening, you're praying, Right? And certainly we're to pray as we minister to others. But we also need time alone. All of us need time alone with the Father. Mark says in verse 36 that Simon and his companions searched for him and they found him. And they said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let's go elsewhere to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came out for. And he went preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out the demons. So again, it's significant that we have what we have in this text. We have the first healing. We have the second healing. We have this break that the Lord takes for some solitary time with the Father. Well, Mark mentions another healing, and that's in verse 40. And it goes down to verse 45. And this is where we see Jesus' power over leprosy. Leprosy was very common in Israel. According to Luke 4.27, it says that there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And we learned about Naaman last week. So it's likely that Jesus actually healed many lepers, even though that there are only two records of this kind of healing. You have this occasion, and you have one in Luke 17 where he healed ten lepers. But let's talk about this horrible disease, because leprosy is a horrible disease. There's no cure for leprosy. Even today, there is no cure for it. In the ancient world, there were 72 distinct diseases of the skin. And they came under the broad heading of leprosy. And Mark doesn't explain to us which variety of leprosy that this poor man had. It may have been Hansen's disease, which is the worst form of leprosy. But any form of leprosy was tragic and disastrous for people in those days. According to medical experts who have studied modern cases of Hansen's disease, leprosy usually begins with pain, and then it's followed by numbness as the disease progressively attacks the nervous system. 
The skin in those areas loses its color. It becomes scaly and thick and eventually turns into sores. The effects are especially noticeable on the face where eyebrows and eyelashes fall out while the skin swells up and bunches up, especially around the eyes and the ears. The disease also causes those it infects to emit a foul odor, making leprosy repulsive both to the sight and to the smell. And so since leprosy numbs its victims, making them incapable of feeling pain, they unintentionally destroy their own tissue because they're unable to feel the damage that they are doing. Now there's only one part of that I can identify with, and that's the numbness part because of neuropathy. Neuropathy produces nerve damage. And sometimes the pain is out of this world. I'll just tell you that and you take my word for it. But then there's other times because of the numbness that you can stub your toe and not feel it and not know that you stubbed your toe or cut your foot or cut your leg until you look down and you see blood because you don't feel it. And sometimes we tend to think, well, that's pretty good. I don't have to feel this pain. (laughs) But no, it's not good because pain is actually a good thing. It's, it's because of pain that we don't walk around sticking our hands on the stove, right? While it's on. And we teach our kids to stay away from there. We spank their little hands to make sure that they know that there is a greater pain that's going to come far greater than what mom or dad can do to your little hand when you lay your hands on that stove, right? Or anywhere else, for that matter, where there's a danger involved. Philip Yancey He says that Hansen's disease numbing quality is precisely the reason such fabled destruction and decay of tissue occurs. He says, for thousands of years, people thought that Hansen's disease caused the ulcer on hands and feet and face, which eventually led to rotting flesh and loss of limbs. And through modern medical research, it's been established that 99% of the cases, Hansen's disease only numbs the extremities. The destruction follows solely because the warning system of pain is gone. How does the decay happen, he writes? Well, in villages of Africa and Asia, a person with Hansen's disease has been known to reach directly into a charcoal fire to retrieve a dropped potato. Nothing in his body told him to. Patients, even at Brands Hospital in India, would work all day gripping a shovel with a protruding nail or extinguishing a burning wick with their bare hands or walk on splintered uh, glass. And the daily routines of life ground away at the Hansen's diseases, the patient's hands and their feet. And again, no warning system to alert them. If an ankle turned, tearing the tendon and the muscle, he would adjust and walk crooked. If a rat chewed off a finger in the night, he would not discover it missing until the next morning. That's how bad this is. And if you look there at verse 40, Mark says that this man put off all caution when he came to Jesus, beseeching him, falling on his knees before him. Now he violated everything in the Levitical regulations when he came to Jesus. Even the Talmud said that the closest a leopard could come to someone without the disease was six feet. 
On a windy day, the distance was extended to 150 feet. And here he comes to Jesus, totally ignoring the regulations of Leviticus 14, because when a leper came up on anybody, he had to say out loud to the people he was coming up to, unclean, 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 announcing his uncleanness. So he says to Jesus in verse 41, If you are willing, you can make me clean. This is a third class condition in the Greek. And so his request is made without any kind of presumption. It's like he's saying, if you're willing, and I'm not saying whether you're not, you can make me clean. I remember when I read that, I was thinking that sometimes that's, that's what I think when I pray. I'm not praying or thinking that God can't heal, can't remedy this situation, because I know He can. But the only question in my mind is, will He? <clears throat> will He do it at this time? Or will He do it again? At this time. See, the leper knew that Jesus could make him clean, but he wasn't certain whether he would or whether he wouldn't. <clears throat> and although his willingness to risk approaching Jesus meant that he came in the hope that his request would be graciously granted, he had obviously heard about Jesus. Everybody by this point had heard about him. He knew that he could heal him. Now, if you have the NIV translation, it would say that instead of Jesus being moved with compassion, it would say that he was indignant, that he was angry. Now, he certainly wasn't angry at the man, if that's the correct translation. He'd be angry at the sin just like when Jesus wept there with the news of Lazarus dying. And when he wept, they said, oh, how he loved them. And it's more likely that he wept because of sin and its devastating effects that it has on people. But here it says he was moved with compassion. And he wanted to relieve this man's pain. Now, just take into consideration the, the whole appearance of this man. They had to tear their clothes. They couldn't do anything with their hair, so their hair was just a mess. And so this person's walking up to you. He's yelling, unclean, unclean, unclean. He's swollen around the eyes, all around the face. He may have a finger or two gone. He may have an ear gone or a piece of his ear gone. Um, he may be walking crooked. He may have a portion of his leg gone or his foot gone or his toes. Because that's what happens with this disease. Things just fall off. And when Jesus said he was willing to heal him, This would be out of these three miracles here of healing. 
probably one of the greatest of the three. Like we heard last week about Naaman. He was told to go dunk seven times in the Jordan River and he'd be clean. Naaman wasn't Jewish. Naaman didn't have to do what this man had to do to go show himself to the priest after he was healed. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But Jesus wasn't mad at him because he came asking. He was moved. Moved with compassion. It's interesting that the word moved with compassion, it's one verb, one word. But it translates moved with compassion. That's literally the bowels. A lot of times we talk about feelings in the heart. and We say, I love you with all my heart. Well, you know, the heart can't feel anything. But it sure does sound better by saying, I love you with all my bowels, right? See, the reason why the Jewish people chose bowels, because that's where the pain was. When their stomach was upset, the pain was in that lower area. It wasn't in the heart. In fact, in the Old Testament, the heart didn't represent emotions, it represented the mind. That's why you hear in Proverbs chapter 4 to guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. Read it back this way guard your mind. You've got to guard your mind. And you've got to make sure that you do not let your emotions dictate what your mind thinks. This is where we mess up. Our mind is to control our emotions. And when your emotions are everywhere and they're all over the place, and you're not hanging on to the Scripture with your mind and your understanding, you have it reversed. So he was moved with compassion. And I believe that compassion is the better term because of what it says next. It says, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. The Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless one, whose food was to do the will of the Father, to fulfill all righteousness, violated the ceremonial law. Not only was the leper not allowed to touch a non-leper, but the non-leper was not allowed to touch the leper. But Jesus touched him. Notwithstanding any controversies that the Jewish religious leaders would come after him for, he was moved with compassion. He felt for this guy. You know what that feels like, don't you? Because sometimes when somebody is asking for your help, you are moved with compassion. You feel what they're going through and you want to do what you can to help. That's why we're told in 1 John three seventeen and 18 not to shut up our bowels of compassion against a believer who has a need. And that person comes to you with that need. You're not to shut them off. You're not to turn them away. You are to help them.
Well, notice what he says in verse 43. After he cleanses him, he then warns him. He says, Say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city but stayed out in unpopulated areas and they were coming to him from everywhere. So again, the first part of this, verse 45, say nothing to anyone but go show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing for what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. This was what he was told to do in Leviticus chapter 14. In this chapter it says, in order for a leper to be declared clean, he had to do several things. And the first thing he had to do is he had to go to the priest who was on duty at the temple. The priest would then examine him and verify if he was cleansed. And here's what they had to do. He had to take two live birds along with cedar wood, a piece of scarlet cloth, and hyssop. One bird was killed over an earthen vessel containing fresh running water, and the living bird was dipped in the blood mixed with water and then released. The same blood mixed with water was sprinkled seven times on the healed person. And after this symbolic purification, the individual was required to cleanse himself bodily. And although he could now enter the camp, he still had to remain outside his tent for another seven days. But when it was all said and done, the priest would come to the conclusion that this man was cleansed. That's the testimony of Jesus' healing to them. So they would have to conclude that this was a legitimate cleansing, a legitimate healing, and Jesus did it. That's why he wanted him to go and follow the Levitical regulations. He also didn't want him to say anything because he was already being bombarded with crowds bringing people sick to him to heal them. This would just continue. It would make it difficult for him to go into areas that he hadn't went into yet because they will have already heard this news. It would have already created a crowd. And so that's why when he was in this secluded place and Peter says, everybody's looking for you. Where'd you go? He said, let's leave. We need to leave. You know, and if that was a modern day preacher, the modern day preacher would say, yeah, let's stay. And I don't think necessarily would be anything wrong with staying if you're staying for the right reasons. Well, when you think about these three healings, what does it say? What did we say when we began? Jesus is who? The Son of God. Again, this is the gospel. This is the declaration about Jesus that Mark makes all throughout these 16 chapters. So the purpose of the miracles, whether it's healing disease or whether it's ending death, or whether it's casting out demons or feeding multitudes or walking on water. Whatever it is that was miraculous and was done in order to validate the faith 
of those who were watching. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And therefore, not only does He have supernatural power, but what He says is always true. Always. So as I began to think about this, and this is really where I started in my study, is what I want to share now. Because what led me back to this story, and to emphasize to you that these three miracles point to telling us who Jesus is, as I was thinking about these other areas that I want to address now, it made me think about that. In fact, where I was going with this when I started the study, it was based upon a question that was asked in Acts chapter 16, verses 30 and 31. And the question came from the Philippian jailer to Paul and Silas. You remember they were thrown in jail there in Philippi. They were beaten. Their feet were locked in the stocks. And this happened after Paul had cast out a demon out of a slave girl who was walking around going, these are the servants of the Most High God. Well, that went on for several days, and Paul was very annoyed by it. So he turned to the woman, and he said to the unclean spirit, Come out of her. And immediately that unclean spirit came out. Well, the people that were using her to make money by fortune-telling were now not making money because she couldn't do this anymore. So they were very upset over this, and they stirred up the whole city. They got Paul and Silas thrown in jail, but before they were thrown in jail, they were beaten. Which they will find out later that that was a no-no because they were Roman citizens, and you didn't beat a Roman citizen. But here's the question that the Philippian jailer asked. And this happened after an earthquake occurred and the doors swung open to the prison cells and the chains fell off all the prisoners. The Philippian jailer thought that all the prisoners escaped. So you know what he was about to do? He was about to kill himself. Because if any prisoner escaped, it meant he was going to lose his head. So he was just going to beat them to it. But he hears Paul cry out to him. And Paul says, don't do yourself any harm. We're all here. And the man was overwhelmed. See, this is a good opportunity to say that you don't know about your situation as to who is watching you and what's happening with another person that's around you because they're watching how you respond. And when they were thrown into jail, they weren't sitting in there complaining about it. They had their feet locked in the stocks after being beaten. And what, what were they doing? They were singing hymns to God. They were praising God. And so that Philippian jailer heard all of that. So you know what he asked them? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what did he say? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your house. And what that means is, you will be saved, and each individual member in your house who also believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. It's not that one person believes and it takes care of everybody else. 
So parents, grandparents, it doesn't work like that. Every one of them needs to have a relationship with Christ. Every one of them needs to come to Christ. Every one of them needs to do what I want to share now. And again, what led me here is really what I was thinking about of this passage. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus. Well, to believe in the Lord Jesus, you need to know who the Lord Jesus is. Right? And this is where we seem to fall short. You know, we just think that everybody knows who Jesus is. But that's not always the case, especially today. Because the generation that's grown up now doesn't know who Jesus is. If they did, they wouldn't be participating in protests that involve destruction of buildings and life. They wouldn't join groups like Black Lives Matter or Antifa or any other group that has the same agenda. If they knew about the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is, it would have had a tremendous effect on their life. Well, who is the Savior? The Savior is the Son of God, right? Again, that's what Mark says. His healing ministry proved it. He is the Son of God. And you know what? Mark wasn't the only one who said this. You know who else said this? Satan. Satan said this. In Matthew 4.3, during the temptation, the tempter came and he said, it's not if you are the Son of God. In Greek, it's since you are the Son of God. They can't deny the reality of who Jesus is. That's why when you're here in Mark, it says that he would not allow the demons to speak because they knew who he was. He shut them down. But we do hear them, Mark 3.11, whenever the unclean spirits were seeing him, they would fall down before him and cry out saying, You are the Son of God. It's amazing that they can't deny this, but this is what they try to get you to deny. This is what they try to get the world to deny. But it was proclaimed by Satan. It was proclaimed by demons. It was proclaimed by Gabriel to Mary. Luke one thirty five. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. They weren't the only ones that proclaimed it. John the Baptist said, John 1.34, And I myself have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Nathaniel said it, John 1.49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Philip said it, Acts 8.37, If you believe with all your heart, here he's speaking to the Ethiopian eunuch, he says, You may, that is, be baptized. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And of course, Paul proclaimed it, Acts 9.20, right after he received his sight, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 4.14, 
said, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold of our confession. The Apostle John, 1 John 4.15, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. Last one I'll give you is the centurion. After Jesus gave up his spirit, as he died on the cross, the centurion said this in Mark 15, 39. He said, truly this man was God's son. So you need to believe in the Lord Jesus. Who is he? He's the son of God. You know who else he is? He's God incarnate. He's God in flesh. John 1, 14. He's the Word that was with God. He's the Creator. Listen, if you're the Creator, you're God. Right? Another title that he has, and he says there, Believe in the Lord Jesus. Jesus was a very common name during that time. Just as common as my name is and yours. But what made it special was putting the title Kurios or Lord in front of it, the Lord Jesus. And Lord is really another term for God. If you're Lord of all, then you're God of all. And the Bible demonstrates this in Philippians 2.9 when it says, Therefore God also highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in other words, to be saved, you must believe what Scripture says about Jesus, and you must believe He is who He claimed to be. To the woman at the well in John chapter 4, she talked about the Messiah that would come. He said, I who speak to you am. I am the Messiah. You got to believe what the Scripture says. If you don't believe what the Scripture says, then you call it a lie. You call Jesus a liar. You call God a liar. You call the Holy Spirit a liar. You call every writer of Scripture who talked about this a liar. But John 20, 31 says that these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. The word believe is more than intellectual knowledge. The word itself, pistuo, it means to believe, it means to have faith in, it means to be firmly persuaded as to something. I like that definition. In the words of Romans 4.21, it means to be fully assured, fully convinced, wholly certain. In fact, there's another word found in John 1.12. It also means to believe, and it's the word receive. John 1.12 and 13 says, But as many as received Him, 
To them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You see, to receive means to lay a hold of, take hold of. And really, the second phrase describes the first. To receive Him who is the Word of God means to acknowledge His claims, to place one's faith in Him, to thereby yield allegiance to Him. So not only do you have to believe what the Scripture says about Him and believe that He is who He claimed to be, but you must also believe in what He did. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Jesus died for our sins. That's what you have to believe. And you confess it. Romans 10.9 You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. The Bible says you will be saved. See, belief has to have an object, and Jesus is the object of our faith. Acts 20 and verse 21 reveals that this is what Paul proclaimed to both Jews and Gentiles, and that is repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 16, 16 says, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And let me just say something about this, because there are many people out there that proclaim that in order to be saved, you also have to be baptized. And they'll quote this verse. They'll say, see, it says it. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But notice the condemnation is not against someone who hasn't been baptized, but against someone who hasn't believed. When he says that he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. <clears throat> and of course you know Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. Or John 3.16, That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I've shared this with you before, but over in John chapter 2, verse 23, we find that same word believe translated commit or entrust. And it really gives us an understanding. It's more than just having these intellectual thoughts and having the right thoughts about God, but it also means that you commit your life to what you believe. We live our lives based upon what we believe. You do what you do because of what you believe. You either do it that way or you're just the biggest hypocrite in the world. But we live on faith. We live on beliefs. Whether you have the belief in Christ or not, you live by beliefs. People that's doing this crazy stuff in the world have a set of beliefs. And they're trying to shove it down our throats. They're trying to get you to be desensitized by this sin that they're so grossly involved in that the Bible still calls an abomination. But they want you to accept it. That's their doctrine. That's what they believe. That's what they live by. But over in John 2.23, it says that when 
Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast. It says many believed in his name when they saw his signs that he was doing. You see, they, they, they were attracted by the miracles and they, they attached themselves to him because of the miracles. But it says here that on his part, he wasn't entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. He knew what was in their hearts. He knew the reason why that they were attaching themselves to him, but he didn't accept that. John Stott says, If to believe in Jesus was man's first duty, not to believe in Him was his chief sin. That's his chief sin. This is why people go to hell. It's because of unbelief. It's unbelief that sends them to hell. People talk about the pardonable sin, unpardonable sin. And so forth. Well, let me just say something about that. You would have had to been there in the days of Jesus while he was on the earth doing the miracles and then attribute his miracles to Satan in order to commit that sin. That was the unpardonable sin. Is there another unpardonable sin? Yeah, it's called unbelief. If you never believe, you'll perish in hell forever. You say, well, God's not drawing me. Well, you better pray that he does. Because today may be your last day on earth. Even James says, For him to know to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. You're sitting here, you hear this, and you hear the truth. What are you going to do about it? Jesus has already demonstrated in this gospel that he is the Son of God by healing Peter's mother-in-law, by casting out demons, healing all the sick that came to Him by healing a man with leprosy. And He's going to do more and more stuff in this gospel that's going to just keep demonstrating that He is the Son of God, that He is who He says He is. Are you willing to accept that? Are you willing to embrace that? R.C. Sproul said, The issue of faith is not so much whether we believe in God, but whether we believe the God we believe in. Do you believe the God you believe in? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? If you do, you confess Him. You confess Him with your mouth. Going back to Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. And the word confess there, it means to say the same thing. So to say that I believe that Jesus is Lord, <coughs> is to say I agree with Scripture. I agree with the Bible that says that He is Lord. And I repent. Because if He is Lord, He is also judge. If He's Lord and judge, one day I'm going to give an account to Him for my life. So to confess Him as Lord is to agree with what the Bible says about Him, that He is Lord. And you know, beloved, this is something that we have been told 
Matthew 10, 32 and 33, that if everyone who confesses me before men, he says, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So you can either confess him or deny him. You don't have a middle choice. You don't have a third choice. There's no middle ground there. Luke 12.8 says, Everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. Do you confess him? Do you agree with Scripture that he is Lord? Do you proclaim him as Lord? See, I don't really think that we have a full grasp of who he is. Or it would totally transform our evangelism. You know? We would be running to everybody, pleading with them to believe, because we know the consequences of unbelief. If we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, it would have a tremendous effect on our life. A tremendous effect on our evangelism. Well, beloved, I have a lot more to say, and I'm just going to cut it right here. But we can do that. And this is something that we have to grasp. You read these accounts just as I read them to you. You looked at this account in verses 29 to 45. You saw the three healings there. You saw all three of them said that, and demonstrated that they were healed or cleansed. You saw it. You heard it. Now what are you going to do with it? Let's warn people about the coming judge. Let's invite them to the Savior so that they can be saved, redeemed, forgiven, As I said, there's much more I'd like to say, but unfortunately the time is gone. And so as we pray at this time, we're also going to share in the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. As we do that, you prepare your heart, you take these questions I've asked you, you take them to heart, and you respond appropriately to Christ. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this opportunity we've had to look at your word this morning. We thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to, to respond. And I pray, Lord, that our response will be appropriate, our response will be biblical, our response will be worship. Lord, as we come to this table now to... Remember your death, burial, and resurrection. That again points out who you are and what you did on our behalf. And we want to proclaim that until you come. So Lord, cleanse our minds, cleanse our hearts. Help us to examine ourselves. Help us to make sure that we don't take of this cup or of this bread in an unworthy manner. 
But God, we have first examined ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith, to make sure that we truly do know you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. We thank you for this opportunity today. And we pray all this in your presence.